Welcome to Before the Ballot, a podcast series designed to educate voters before they cast their ballots this November. I'm your host, Elizabeth Donahue, and joining me today to discuss race is Keith Waylou. Keith is the Henry Putton University Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton. He is a former vice dean of the School of Public and International Affairs, former chair of history, and current president of the American Association for the History of Medicine. His work straddles history and health policy, focusing on drugs and drug policy. He also studies the politics of race and health and the interplay of identity, ethnicity, gender, and medicine. Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So as you're well aware, this summer has been one of serious unrest around the United States, even amid the unfolding pandemic. Uh, We saw a number of killings of unarmed Black people and the disparate impact of COVID on communities of color, and all of that has sparked protests nationwide. How did we reach this point? And can you look in your crystal ball and let us know where you think we're headed next? So the crystal ball is a little tough, but I can tell you you a little bit more about uh, how I think we got here. The incredible and the callous disregard for black lives by police, which was made visible by the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, was, you know, particularly shocking because it was caught on videotape and because of the incredibly painful, slow, and deliberate way in which he was killed by police officers. But it was not new. I mean, as most of us will remember, it was about six years ago this summer that Eric Garners uh, was killed in a chokehold in Staten Island, also caught on tape and also producing shock and outrage. The One of the things that makes this a recurring feature is the omnipresence of cell phones, which means that these acts um, in which, which have historically occurred, but where police have historically been given the benefit of the doubt are now recorded, uh, made more visible and widely broadcast. And in some ways you might say in our era, the blame is tilted uh, because of the availability of those images. So what's new this year is, I would say, the circumstances. Uh, I don't think that COVID-19 and the pandemic is incidental. In this year, what you have is these callous acts emerging in a context where two months into it, into the lockdown for COVID-19 is when the George Floyd murder happened. People have been thrown out of jobs. The prospect for the future was uncertain. And there's a sense of vulnerability that we all feel about the COVID-19, about the health crisis. And then you throw this in, in the context of the loss of jobs and the anxieties around health, you throw this video on top of that anxiety. It's also the case that we're in an election year. And so you have this callous act in the context of a rather callous, hardening national conversation on race, which is made more so by a president who has been uninhibited in his views on race and his racism. So as a historian, could you put what's going on today in the context of other moments in our country's history where racism was brought to the fore 
and protest was a result. How does this compare to some historical Well, certainly one of the easiest comparisons is the social unrest and turmoil in the United States after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Much of the nature of the protest in in the wake of an unjust killing seems to echo the unrests and the protests of the late 1960s. But as I mentioned before, you can also think of 2020 as a year that in some ways combines elements of, let's say, the pandemic year of 1918 and the crises associated with that, with the economic crisis of 1929 adding atop of that the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968. So, in, in, in some ways, you know, that's what makes this year so uh, unprecedented as an overused term, but really quite dramatic, unique. If one combines all of those factors, you have this year in a nutshell. Um, today is different in how those traumas intersect. So, in my view, the social protests are not incidental to the pandemic, as I mentioned before, when George Floyd was killed in May on May 25th, he had we'd already been locked down and uncertain about the future for two months. There was concern about our safety, we were all vulnerable, and then there were tens of millions of job losses disproportionately impacting black and brown people. And then Minneapolis happens. Um, there's a sense of insult layered atop injury layered atop insult, layered atop injury. The reactions of our administration, uh, whether it's in Lafayette Square or in Portland, remind me a little bit of like the Kent State, you know, killing of young people by Ohio National Guard in May of 1970. That is to say, the administration's response can also add further fuel to the fire. So, of course, you study racial inequalities, particularly as it, as it applies to healthcare. Certainly, we know that racial inequalities have been baked into lots of U.S. policies historically. So, could you talk a little bit about your work and, again, what's been exacerbated by COVID-19? COVID-19 has both exposed and exacerbated disparities in health. And but across so many registers that it's almost impossible to keep track. So first you have, as you mentioned, things like housing. Uh, it's unquestionable that the density of living, uh, congestion in high rises, um, sharing elevators, uh, living in uh, cities or states like New Jersey with high density populations, uh, or living in households with multiple generations living in the same house. The circumstances of living in cities made them more, more vulnerable early on to the brutal efficiency of the coronavirus' spread. But so too, we also learned that disparities in work produced disparities. People we now call essential workers who uh, were working far outside of cities, sometimes in Midwestern meatpacking plants, Latino workers there, who were adversely impacted, more exposed, more devastated. And then you have the circumstances of life and work implicating who lives and who dies. And then you add other structural factors like nursing homes, um, institutions that 
prove particularly deadly, uh, efficient uh, way, places for the spread of coronavirus. Native Americans with low access to running water, unable to do the basic hand washing that's necessary to safeguard your health. So, what happens when people are multiply disadvantaged, that is, in housing, in transportation, in work, in age, and in where they happen to live? Those raise policy questions across a number of different registers. And of course, you know, the reason why we saw the adverse implications for black people and brown people have to do a great deal with the fact that they are the people who are, were multiply disadvantaged in terms of urban location, housing, work, age, location, and these structural vulnerability. So, vulnerability. So the question is like, what's the policy response? Well, I mean, the policy responses will have to be as diverse as the kinds of problems. Better design of transportation, smarter design of various institutions. Uh, and I mean, I think the, the, the basic th thing that I think we'll be working on for the rest of, well, for the next four years, I hope, is getting a better handle on how you manage public health crises. So I guess what I'd say is I don't have a, uh, a guidebook or recipe for what we need to do next, but I do hope and believe that all of these public policy questions need to be on the agenda for any smart government going forward. Have you been surprised at how much some things that are considered pure public health, right? You should wear a mask so you don't transmit disease. You should have some social distancing. Um, you should get your flu vaccine. You should get the COVID vaccine when and if it, you know, when it's produced. They've become very political in an, in an almost an extreme way. Um, so I guess I have two questions for you. One is, have you been surprised at how political some of these things have become? And secondly, are there historical moments that have mirrored this? It turns out that if you rewind the clock 102 years to 1918, you see many of the same elements of, in fact, an extraordinary politicization of masks, a, a deep skepticism that uh, the so-called influenza is transmissible, um, and protests about mask wearing. The difference is, by and large, public health authorities and trusted members of, uh, of government all stood on the side of safeguarding the public health and, in fact, using the police powers of the state to ensure the public health by requiring that theaters stay closed, that people wear masks on public transportation, and so on. I think what is remarkable, and yeah, in a measure surprising about where we are today, is that the kind of anti-science movement, the, the skeptics around questions of vaccines who had already been there, have so commandeered much of the public conversation that you saw it very quickly trickle over 
into a skepticism about masks and a willingness to protest and and then inflamed once again by a president uh, we 've never really had this before a president who is really quite shameless in his willingness to disparage masks or to kind of play politics with the these these basic questions of public health, where um, if they if they, we were singing with one kind of unified voice, you might not see the entire disappearance of these perspectives, but they wouldn't play such a central role in the way we are responding to uh, the coronavirus. And of course, the other place that we've seen a real politicization is how we view our past and what should symbolically represent our past. So, of course, a backdrop to everything else you've mentioned is in many cities and towns, the removal of Confederate monuments, changes of institutional names, including the removal from the school that you and I are part of, the Woodrow Wilson School, as a way to do a telling of our story, if you will, that perhaps doesn't celebrate people who made decisions that uh, were racist and sexist in some ways. Every era makes decisions about how the past should be commemorated and, and then is forced to contend with those decisions. I mean, that's what history is. It's a constant kind of revisiting our understandings of who we are and looking anew at the kinds of monuments that we have created. What's often ignored is the circumstances that led to these monuments to go, going up in the first place. So, the 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 reckoning with the Confederate monuments, some people see it as like erasing the past. And I see it as um, revisiting a particular set of decisions uh, at the high point of the backlash against Reconstruction. Um, a, a moment in the past, oh, about 100 years ago, um, 120 years ago, let's say, where the upholding of the Confederacy as a lost cause uh, became the champion issue of whites in the South. This is an era that saw the resurgence of the Klan. Um, and, and so, the, we have to kind of fully understand the circumstances that led to the creation of the Confederate monument. And when we fully grapple with that, then history helps us to see the circumstances for the creating of those monuments and statues, maybe even thinking about the blinders, the blind spots, the ways in which certain kinds of recollections of the Civil War were pushed aside at that moment. Um, and so, in many ways, it isn't just the statue that's being revisited, but the mindset, as well as the blinders that led to those statues going up. And we're at a moment now when people are asking questions, not just about the statues, but about the mindset, the mindset of, let's say, white supremacy. I guess I should say one other quick thing about reckoning with the past. Um, you know, where we are today with regard to questions of racial inequality um, is also not new. Uh, this idea that we need to reckon with poverty and reckon with racial inequality. And the one thing I would say about the American society is that we frequently have these reckonings. 
15 years ago, we saw this play out around Katrina. The idea that, you know, Katrina and its devastating impact in New Orleans revealed the shock of poverty, the idea that black people were f- the face of vulnerability. It was also uh, an opportunity for seeing this shock play out on television and um, a, a judgment on the presidency of George H.W. Bush. And in some ways, I think of as COVID-19 as Katrina on a tragic national scale. It's greeted with the same kind of shock, the same kind of eye-opening, how could this be so, and also a willingness to sadly blame the poor for causing their own predicament. In some ways, a lot of my work is trying to understand how Americans understand pain or the experiences of health across these different registers, why at certain times Americans decide to take seriously these disparities, and then why sometimes they so quickly and easily forget and move on to other things. So there's a kind of a positive lesson in the history, and then there's kind of a sadly tragic uh, negative lesson as well. Are you worried that we'll forget this time? that 10 to 15 years will pass and we'll be having the same debate? As soon as many states, Florida, Georgia, and others, looked at what was going on in New York, and they didn't see exactly the same scale of infection and mortality in March and April, they decided, time to open up right? Time to go back to business as usual. So you see that even in the short term, people are willing to kind of engage in this magical thinking. It can't happen here. And I think also historically, um, Americans, maybe not just Americans, are willing to um, move on. They want to move on to what's next. Uh, they want to put behind them the um, the unpleasantness Uh, And in some ways, not only is COVID-19 a key part of the unpleasantness of 2020, but so is the kind of shocking realization of poverty and racial inequality. So I won't be surprised to see people who want to move on quickly. Uh, What I would hope for is an understanding that these are not issues, the massive loss of jobs, the massive mortality, and the kind of realization of the toll of racism uh, and racial inequality in American society, that these are not things that we can quickly or should quickly move on from. With the upcoming election, how much do you think race and racial inequality will play a part in people's decision-making? Trump is a particularly shocking uh, president for his public callousness, his apparent embrace of racism, ethnic hostility, hostility towards women, almost wearing these as badges, uh, points of pride. Uh, the shock is something that both his detractors and his supporters are used to. People are either uh, repelled by his uh, style of language or they're drawn to it. And so I don't actually think that uh, I've been, I've been shocked to see how tolerant his supporters are of, of these uh, points of view that he expresses. So to me, the question of race uh, in this election is pretty much 
baked in. Uh, people either look at it or look past it. Um, you know, years ago, when Barack Obama was running for the primary uh, in the against Hillary Clinton, he talked about Americans being drawn to the spectacle of race. And in some ways, I think that's what we're living through right now. Um, in my view, the things that will ultimately determine the election are less about the question of race and more about the shocking ineptitude uh, of how the Trump administration has handled the coronavirus. In my way, in my view, that will be the determining factor. Um, and, you know, the, the racial disparities, of course, inform our understanding the, but, but I do think that ultimately it's this really quite shocking life or death um, mismanagement that will uh, drive the election. If I'm a voter and race is really important to me, what should I be thinking about when I go to vote? Sort of tend to think, you, you asked about pivotal moments uh, in a previous question, and I sort of see this election the way people thought about 1964. That is, um, Lyndon Johnson, uh, him, himself the incumbent running against Barry Goldwater. Um, and it's not because of the incumbent challenger, it's because of the really the sense that you were at a massive fork in the road. I mean, in retrospect, we could see that Johnson's landslide victory produced um, Medicare, it produced uh, Medicaid, it produced the Voting Rights Act, it produced the Civil Rights Act, it produced many of the elements of a society that's founded on the idea that we should be working as hard as we can to restore decency, but also to embrace honesty and ultimately to repair fractures in race relations. And so, in my view, I think of the Biden-Trump election as akin to the LBJ Goldwater election. Um, and the byproduct hopefully will be a, a, a better system moving ahead, not just on questions of race, but also on questions of, you know, uh, society, public health, uh, and some of the core values that matter to Americans, like, you know, honesty, faith in science, and so on. I want to say one other thing about the the election because Kamala Harris is is Biden's vice president, presidential pick, and I, I do think there are, are a couple of warning signs. Um, the callous conversation about race that I've been describing as part of the 2020 or the Trump uh, administration's time in office is not. It, it predated Trump. Um, it, the backlash against Obama uh, and the kind of highly racialized backlash against Obama really started as early as 2008 uh, and became increasingly explicit. And, and what I find important, and it connects with Kamala Harris, is that, you know, Obama is a biracial man. And his presidency presidency could have been an opportunity for a very different kind of conversation about race in all of its complexity. Uh, the press didn't want it, and certainly Republicans didn't want it. And what we ended up with is this kind of binary conversation, blacks and whites. And, you know, Kamala Harris is the child of a Jamaican man and a South Asian woman. 
Uh, she also represents the complexity of race and identity in American society. I've seen it discussed occasionally. So she's black uh, and she's running with a white guy. And I, I would hope that you know, the missed opportunity for having a more complicated conversation about race in America that we missed with the Obama years. Uh, if Kamala Harris is the vice president, I hope uh, that maybe Americans could be uh, more educated into a more rich and complex conversation about race, but entail having a more informed and smart media to help that happen. Well, that is, it's a very interesting point to end. And uh, I, sh I share your hope for that as well. So I really appreciate your time with us today, Keith. And thank you so much. Go to vote.gov to register to vote in this year's election. You've been listening to Before the Ballot. This show is produced by me, Henry Barrett, with the assistance of Rose Huber, this podcast is intended to be informational only. It does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs.